Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast. We expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Friendsville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. Today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into the controversial subject, undaunted by political correctness. Now, this is the last time on this channel that I will say that phrase. After 75 weeks of uninterrupted content, we've covered so much and learned even more. But today, for the final episode of the Crime of the Century podcast, we will be recovering everything that we've gone over in an in-depth extravaganza, if you will. From the history of Western thought and academia to modern problems of today, this is the final definitive episode of the Crime of the Century. All right, so really the beginning of modern academia started, I would put it right around the time of the Reformation. And this is not just because of the another schism in the church, but more so because this is right around the time that thinkers like Descartes became more prominent and that, that science was able to take hold in a, in a way that, that we would recognize it. Because for the longest time, you can go back to the Greeks and Romans, science was much more of here's what I think happens in the natural world and somebody else may have a competing theory and then you debate and whoever wins the debate, well, he must be right. But when we add rationality into it and the ability to observe in nature what happens and prove or disprove your own theories, that provides a much more logical ground for the world around us. Now the other aspect to the Reformation that's very important, it changed the way Europeans viewed the church. Not so much in a they're questioning God or they're questioning uh, Christ or they're questioning the scripture itself, but the importance of the church. That it became, well, it still had the communal aspect of it, obviously that's where you'd go to uh, meet your neighbors and, and that kind of thing. You and the Pope's authority became less important in the everyday lives of the common men. That people felt more pride in their, started to feel more pride in their nations than they felt in their church or their identity uh, with Catholicism. And the point here that, that, that's very important to uh, note is that religion became more, or the idea of a religion became much more individualized and this is because in one of Paul's letters uh, he is writing uh, to the Corinthians I believe and this is the basis that Martin Luther used for his ideas and, and, and reforming the church. Paul writes that we are saved through Christ alone, that there's no amount of good works that you can do that would get you into heaven because of your ability to sin and the original sin that comes up to us from Adam. And so Martin Luther used this to say that there's no church council that can save you. There's no buying your way into heaven because one of the abuses of the Catholic Church in Martin Luther's day and one of the things that he revolted against or found disgusting was the fact that you had these things called indulgences where the church would essentially say to these poor people that yeah your ancestors might be in hell or you might be going to hell but if you buy this piece of paper signed by the Pope himself 
just all it costs is your monthly wage if you if you buy this from us you can guarantee your ancestors will be in heaven you can guarantee yourself will be in heaven your uncle your dog whoever whatever you want it'll be in heaven just so long as you buy that from us now luther said there's that's not scripturally accurate there's nothing in the scripture that says you can buy your way into heaven on the contrary uh, christ says it's easier for a camel to pass through a needle's eye than it is for a rich man to get into heaven and there are different interpretations of that scripture but it certainly doesn't say oh he has a lot of money he'll get into heaven i think we can all agree on now we're going to jump ahead and we're moving a little uh, quickly here because we've done a more in-depth dive on this in some of the earlier podcasts namely this one comes from episode 62 and it focuses more on the reformation but for the 30 years war we're jumping up uh, to about 1616 uh, here it's a time in history where all of this is coming to a head that the church is still central within European life but the competing ideas around the central figure Jesus Christ has taken hold to where countries and political figures have skewed the messages of Luther and the church and it's actually drawn war lines you have the southern German states Württemberg uh, Bohemia Austria Bavaria Baden and obviously France and Spain you have them uh, in the Catholic camp or at least their nations were Catholic and in the more Protestant or even Anglican group you have England you have the northern German countries which at that time there were so many naming them all would be a challenge in and of itself you had the Swedish you had the Danes and you had basically anyone who was opposed to the great powers of the day who remained Catholic and loyal to the church but the Thirty Years War is an interesting war in the sense that in Europe it started out religious that the reason that Martin Luther was originally protected by the northern German states namely Saxony was because he had been able to convince the Duke of Saxony that what he was saying was closer to the scripture more accurate and something that the leader of Saxony wanted the rest of his nation to follow and he made Lutheranism the or Protestantism more accurately the religious governing uh, body of, of Saxony and then it turned political because the rest of the northern German states saw it as an opportunity to break from the Holy Roman Empire which at that time you could only be a part of if you were Catholic so it got them out from under the rule of Vienna and Austria and this all came to a head in 1618 I'm sorry I misspoken saying 1616 and essentially the diplomats for uh, Bohemia were speaking at a very mundane uh, event there were a number of delegates there mostly Protestant and these Catholic um, uh, uh, essentially these Catholic dignitaries were thrown out the window and landed in a pile of manure and there were two different sides of the story the Protestants said well God hates Catholics so they landed in a pile of manure and the Catholics said 
God loves Catholics, and so he saved them because the fall, had they not fallen in the pile of uh, cow crap, would have killed them, and it probably would have from a second or third story drop. But this essentially sparked off a number of, um, as it often does in Europe, a number of alliances, another, uh, a number of treaties that eventually embroiled the entirety of Central Europe. Now, the interesting aspect is that the French, in order to curb Spanish uh, ambitions and Austrian influence, the French, the majority Catholic country, but large military power, actually joined the Protestants. And this is when we can tell that the war became much more political and less about the actual religion itself. And essentially, the war went back and forth and there was no clear winner. So in 1648, at the Treaty of Westphalia, the key takeaways for Christianity were one, we can't kill each other anymore. This is pointless. All we're doing is destroying homes and each other and we may not agree, we may have heated debates, but stabbing your own brother in the back because he may interpret something different, that doesn't fly anymore. And you can't kill in the name of God. It used to be a defense in court that if you murdered somebody, you could argue, well, he was a pagan, he was a non-believer, he was a uh, infidel, as is the modern term. Um, so what I did was justified because it was in the name of God. That, that was uh, no longer a legal defense, that if you killed somebody for believing differently, that was not a valid reason to murder anybody. And this was something that actually really took hold uh, in the common man as well, not just in the elite. But what it also allowed is for humanism to come into Christianity. And in modern parlance, this may sound like a bad thing, that often uh, Christian scholars will argue that, that humanism has essentially destroyed the truth in Christianity, and that's something that we will get to at a later uh, point in this podcast. But for now, it's a positive thing that some would argue it's actually what the Islamic world is going through now, that you have the more moderate Muslims who are willing to back off of Sharia law. You see this in Saudi Arabia, where now if you're female and 21 and have a male escort, you can drive a car for the first time. You can legally have a driver's license. And this is prohibited in, in Sharia law, but the more moderate, moderate argument uh, prevailed. But you still have the jihadists who are saying, we're going to kill anyone who's not as radical as we are, and we're going to institute global Sharia law. That is similar to the mindset of some of the Christian people that we're talking about here in the 1500s that, and, and 1600s, that they were going to institute their version of Christianity uh, on Europe, be it Catholicism or Protestantism. That's essentially agreed upon that that will not, that, that's, that's not going to happen and that's not a valid reason to go to war with anybody. Now, when this new way of thinking really shapes the philosophs in France, for, uh, for instance, it doesn't always jive with the common people. Now, for the most part, 
it has it or will go over well. I mean, there's a story in France where a business owner who was a Protestant or a Huguenot, he had a son and the son uh, committed suicide. And it was known that this man was troubled, uh, troubled of the mind, as they used to say, and he was not always, always there. He may have had, and it's hard to analyze somebody who's been dead for 400 years and didn't do anything, you know, didn't really have any works to go on. Um, but people and reports at the time, essentially, um, this guy might have had some sort of uh, schizophrenia or something like that, but um, unfortunately he decided to take his own life and he was a young man. Well, the Catholics who didn't want this man in business in this uh, town said that he killed his son and then said it was a, a, a suicide. And the man who, who said he was innocent was still thrown in jail. And this sparked off a huge debate between the Protestants in France, the Huguenots, and the Catholics. And this started a period known as the French Wars of Religion. And so essentially, the humanism that had swept much of Central Europe, and England in particular, had not taken hold in Spain or France. Now, we haven't talked much about Spain, but there weren't many Protestants there in general. Regardless, the next place that we're going to jump to is overseas. And it is not yet the United States, but it will become that. It's at this point the 13 colonies. And this is where the threads that we've been bringing up uh, are, are tied together. You have the rugged individualism that comes not only with Protestantism, but also with frontiersmen. That these men went to start a new religious country. And, and that, for many people, was a vision of the United States. We have, or at least of the 13 colonies, we have this idea that, in particular, Boston is a city upon a hill to which the rest of Christianity will look, that it will be a, a purely Christian place where all of the ills of Europe and all of the ills of, of what had happened between Catholics and Protestants, that's all gone. We're not going to really be tolerant with Catholics, but there aren't any of them here. And so these new colonies will be a way to restart that. Now, that wasn't a decree by England. That was more so the feeling at the time. We've all heard about the Puritans and uh, their pilgrimage, essentially, to the 13 colonies. But that idea, that, that individualism, that you can make it on your own here, if you just put a little hard work into it, it's something that's actually carried with us throughout our existence, even from the time of the 13 colonies, from when we were discovered. So one of the things that, and, and we're going to jump back to Europe now, as we explore that the United States has these ideas already embedded within it, we're going to jump over back to Europe and look more into the changing philosophical landscape. So now that we've understood that the U.S. has this individualism, but also a more religious background than we are typically led to believe, we need to jump over to Europe to see how the philosophical background in Europe is changing. Because it used to be a given that anybody who was a philosopher uh, believed in God, and either they were a Protestant or they were a Catholic. But 
anyone who denied the existence of God, well, they were simply not taken seriously. And the Jewish community was also a scattered community at this time. They were not treated well in Spain. They were given shelter and refuge in Poland. Some went to the Netherlands. However, the Jewish community gave a lot to the philosophical nature of Europe. And it was still at a time, though, when many of them were persecuted uh, for their beliefs. But there was one man in this community named Baruch Spinoza, and he was a great, or known as a great rabbi, or would become a great rabbi. He understood on a different level the nature of the scripture. Now, he didn't hate religion, and he wasn't anti-religion, but he felt those who propagated scripture were either led falsely by human doctrines or were attempting to get money or wealth or personal benefit of the sort. And sometimes you see that philosophy today as well, where people don't necessarily not believe in God, that they believe in something in the universe, but they don't ascribe to any religion and often argue that people who are religious are hypocrites or that they are just in it for money or they're lying, something like that. That was similar to what Spinoza is arguing, but he said he didn't say there wasn't a God. He essentially argued that there was a substance, that whatever substance created the universe had to be perfect because everything, everything in this room, everything that you're looking at right now, I'm sure you're viewing this from some sort of uh, mobile or electronic device that was created by someone and that someone in turn was created by another set of people. And if we trace that logically back far enough, whatever created the first thing had to be perfect enough to create itself. And now Spinoza refused to call that substance God, but he said that it had to logically exist at some point. And this essentially led him to be a bit of a recluse. He was uh, expelled from the Jewish community. He obviously didn't fit in with any of the Catholics and Protestants, but he was able to use that base, and many people in France, about 50 years later, as we jump into the 1750s here, use this as the base for their own arguments. And it set in stage the ideas of deism, it set the stage for some of the more agnostic ideas, not necessarily atheist or anti-God, anti-religion, but a, a skepticism that began to mark Western philosophy. Now, if we jump across the uh, English Channel to, well, England, there's another man named John Locke. Contrary to Spinoza, Locke was a religious man. He was brought up in a religious household. And he actually was uh, a tutor for many of the nobles at the time. Their children would be tutored by John Locke, whether it was in mathematics and science of the day, or whether it was uh, history and other scholarly topics. This was how the nobility ensured that their children were competent enough to lead their estates and not go broke. Now, Locke was the essentially the pioneering figure, some would say in 
libertarianism, others would say in classical liberalism, and some would even argue in American conservatism. And really, it's a combination of the three with a little less emphasis on libertarianism. Now, Locke believed that essentially all men are, are evil, that we're born with the ability to sin, and that makes us evil, just because we have the ability to do wrong. And that that thing separates us from God, that we would be near perfect images of God if we were not, if we, ha if we did not have the capacity to sin. But unfortunately, because of Adam's original sin, we have that capacity to do bad. But he subscribed to the social contract, which essentially meant that because we are free to do bad, it means that we have free will, because we can also choose to not do bad, which in philosophical terms would mean that we do good. It's a little bit of a, um, an interesting concept that the absence of one means that the other must exist. So Locke basically said that we give up some of our inherent freedom in exchange for liberty to improve our society. So you have the freedom to do 60 down, the high, uh, down a, a side street, but your neighbor's kid has the freedom to play in that street. The two of them can't exist at the same time. So you give up your liberty and do 25 so that the child can play in the street and run a uh, much less of a risk of getting injured that it's safer for the both of you if you go slower. Now, when you break the social contract, you get thrown in jail. You have the right to your property. So when you steal and you get caught stealing, you get thrown in jail. When you do 60 down the side street and you hit a kid, you go to jail, understandably. This is the basis for law and the Lockean perspective. Now, this philosophy and much of the philosophies that were emerging right around 1700-1720 did away with the notion of kings and divine right. They didn't outright reject God and on the contrary Locke was a very religious man. So why on earth would they get rid of the divine right? Well that is because essentially they said that all men are created equal. That we are endowed with certain inalienable rights. I'm sure you're, I'm quoting from the uh, Declaration of Independence here. We understand these truths to be self-evident. That's pure Lockeanism. Regardless, this means that, well, we're not out, outright questioning the inherent powers of government. We are questioning the ability of them to be put with one man and the will of one man. And so, Kings don't rule by divine right, but, but by consent of their peers, essentially. That even though someone might be poor and someone might be rich, they don't have separate inherent values. They still both have the right to life, liberty, and property under Locke. And that changed a little bit in the U.S. to say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the flip side of that is the Rousseauian idea. And this is the last point we get to before we jump to a more modern issues and the
problems that we have run into uh, in our modern discourse. But Rousseau, on the other side, argued that people are basically good and that society corrupts. And Rousseau was more of a deist, so he essentially said God created the universe and then left somewhere and we are just here to be ourselves. And Rousseau was actually the author of the social contract, but Locke borrowed from this, as did many of the other philosophers of the day. This was a concept that was understood, but Rousseau was the first to write it down and make it more concrete. Now, Rousseau was somebody who, in believing that humans are good, believed that society is bad. Therefore, anyone who does wrong or does bad, it is not a product of themselves doing wrong, but by the, the circumstances they're in. Or so argued that Western society itself um, corrupts all, and therefore people, uh, indigenous people, uh, especially the indigenous people that many of the colonists were running into at this time, that they were these noble savages, as you put it, that they they were more purely human because they hadn't been corrupted by the society, the Western civilization. And Rousseau argued that in order to fix this, we need to change the structure of laws so that they fit the will of the people. Now, this will of the people is rather vague, as Rousseau had written it, and the author of the encyclopedia uh, Devis Diderot, who was a contemporary of Rousseau, argued more clearly that the will of the people is found in the general mob, that essentially because people are good that the mob is right. So therefore if the mob wants or the majority wants to enact certain laws then the government must follow those laws. And this is actually the basis, the, the disconnect between Lockeanism and Rousseauianism is the gap that separates the American right and left. The American right is much more of a individualistic, men are evil but we give up that right um, of freedom to have liberty between us and that's why the right often comes back to talking about liberty. And the left talks more about society itself is bad and we need more democracy and less of a republic because we need to essentially reorder the laws to fit the will of the people. So now another hundred years later, and the last philosophical man that we uh, need to cover here is the most radical Rousseauian man who ever lived, Karl Marx, who essentially took Rousseau's ideas to the logical extreme, which is that we need to reorder society as a whole and that property is not a right and on the contrary property belongs to everybody so we can't have landowners we can't have people who have more than others it's the will of the people that we're all equal so that we need to completely dismantle the society in order to achieve that utopian view that that man will be fundamentally changed if we just do away with the structures that have been put in place that make men evil because again we're working with the basis that men are good and Rousseau and Locke can agree in some respects, and that's why in the earlier days you would have much more of a, uh, a cohesive government between the two, where the left and right would still push and pull, but there was some middle ground they could agree on. 
now with Karl Marx, you have a philosophy that says we need to take all of you down. We need to reconstruct and tear down all of this and rebuild it in order to achieve a utopia and a utopian vision. And this is just incompatible with the right and people who want to preserve what was or what is and still exists naturally. And that is the backdrop for the American political discourse, for sure, is that we have a left that's moving away from Rousseau and into Karl Marx, who is for sure the radical but logical conclusion to Rousseau's argument. We have the right who is sticking with Locke, maybe moving a little bit into some of the other uh, conservative thinkers, and it's kind of a weird conglomeration of more radical right wing, which would be more libertarianism, more anarchism, and more closer to the left, where you have some people who would be, I suppose, more socially liberal. Regardless, they're still incompatible with Karl Marx and his basis. And the basis for his beliefs actually is what took hold in many of the academic institutions. Now, we don't have time today to go back into this, but just a few podcasts ago, uh, 69 and 70, we talked about the how Karl Marx and his ideas got into the American academia, which used to be very conservative in the sense that we didn't even used to give out doctrines, that school was not emphasized at all within the U.S. social system, and, and now that that's changed, how that's affected our discourse. But because Marxism is the dominating philosophy among many academics, one of the problems is that their teaching and are exclusively, especially in the, in the historical field, are teaching our students essentially exclusively uh, certain historians like Howard Zinn. And these men would view history from a Marxist lens. So anything that happened that might be a positive for the U.S. or anything that happened that may work a, a, for a point in favor of what was, the society that is, the society that is not Marxism, uh, that is discredited or um, you have the yeah but argument in history which is okay this happened but at the same time this bad social ill was happening therefore it's all negated. One of the common arguments is yeah World War II was great but the army was still segregated so America really it wasn't a good war we were just two powers fighting each other. That's a very Marxist idea that it's really just these couple of rich people in control and they are fighting each other. Now, again, we don't have time today to go into all of that. Just unpacking that could be a book in of itself. Regardless, this is how we're being taught in schools. We're being taught from a Marxist base, which is essentially anti-American, anti-capitalism in general. And this wouldn't be necessarily an ill if it didn't affect the workforce, because people come out with a certain mindset and get into the society that's not Marxist at all, into a structure that's not Marxist at all, and this is where you see a lot of discontent because we are taught that things are a certain way and sometimes the real world doesn't match that aspect. 
we have a lot less uh, people who, or students, younger people, who work a, a, a full job before they get into college. Some go right high school to college and then into the workforce. So we don't have any alternative views. We have uh, public schools that teach from Marxist based because their students were, uh, or at least the teachers were taught from a Marxist based. Then you have the students move into college, which is just, uh, I think there was a recent poll that said 89% of uh, professors are at least left leaning. So there's a higher, a much higher percentage that they are um, of a Marxist base. And so you're taught that the world is this evil, radical place, and you start to imagine in your mind all of the people that are against you. And you have all the different focus groups that you have nowadays and identity groups that are vying for attention. You see this in the rifts in the modern Democratic Party. And causes a lot of discontent, but that's only one aspect. A lot of the other discontent we're feeling right now is from the financial aspect. Now you have these things called 529 plans, which are designed to get students into college who may uh, not have parents who would have saved otherwise. And that these plans are set up specifically so that you put money in and you only get a tax break if that money uh, is drained completely uh, within four years and is used for college and school only. Now, aside from the implications that the government can tell you what to do with your money, and the other functions of the 529 plan, um, again, is too deep of a topic for this, uh, this episode, but there were other top, uh, shows on this, this topic, uh, namely in the 20s and 30s, um, back about 20 weeks ago. But 529 plans essentially penalize you, again, for moving outside, using that money for anything else other than college, which means that you're, you're losing money that could be saved for other things. You're stopping the forward momentum of money to give it to an institution, and you're incentivized to do that. Again, we've not talked about opportunity costs. We've not talked about uninterrupted compounding growth in a while on this show, so please go back to podcast 30 or 20 if you are unfamiliar with some of these topics. But these 529 plans will essentially hurt the parent's wallet because it also impacts any qualifications, FAFSA forms, all of that stuff for getting to college. It may show up as you have too much money and therefore get no aid in going to school, which may force students to take out the notorious student loans. Now student loans you cannot get rid of if you go bankrupt. You will have these high interest loans out sometimes for 20 years paying back on a, uh, paying to an institution where you could have used that money for rent, you could have used it for cars, you could have used it for your own kids. Unfortunately, this means that many students are starting behind the eight ball and the jobs that they get simply don't cover all of the expenses that they have. And this is because the cost of education itself has risen exponentially. And this is because colleges get the money up front when the loan is taken out. They are paid for the full education of that student up front and they can charge whatever because the bank knows that that loan is guaranteed. If the, if the student goes bankrupt, it doesn't matter. They've still got to pay that loan. So the 
amount of money that the college can charge can rise exponentially because one, they get the money up front, and two, uh, there's nothing stopping them from uh, the, the bank from not giving the college that money or taking that loan. And this discontent, financially and socially, uh, can cause the rise of radical things. We've seen Antifa in Portland. We have seen, in general, uh, workplaces that are shying away from from politics and political discussion just because there's such a gap between the two sides that it can't be civil and there's no enlightened discussion so much as it's sports teams almost going back and forth. It's like it's like having a uh, uh, trying to have a civil conversation between a Raiders and a Chargers fan. It's not going to happen. So in all, and really the point I want to emphasize is there is solutions to this that aren't too difficult. Now I want to dispel the idea that we need to abolish student loans. I don't think they should happen, but I don't think there should be any loan forgiveness. The taking of the loan was voluntary. Nobody forced that loan to be taken, and the bank gave that money knowing that it would be paid off. So I don't think there should be any forgiveness in that sense, but I don't think there should be any more given out. That if students really want to go to college and want a certain job, saving up for maybe semester by semester payments would be much easier. It would also help to bring down the cost of education because colleges are simply not getting the money up front from the banks. They're getting it at a reduced rate from the students themselves. It would also mean that um, colleges would have to listen more to the students and what the students wanted and have an experience that actually prepared them for the workforce that they were going into. And the other thing is to not have the same social implications of not having a college degree or not yet having a degree. That perhaps it should become more of the social norm to have a break between high school and college. Now if somebody's 25 and going to college, that's not a bad thing. So maybe they take six or five years to figure out who they are figure out what they want to do with their lives, and if they need college, if they want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a mathematician or engineer or whatever, then they take the four to 12 years to actually study that craft while still learning the original workforce, having their own money, having the confidence to be independent. That that would create a, a healthier society in which students maybe even are more confident in questioning their professors, more confident with themselves and their own personal philosophies and what they believe. And that would help break and solve the crime of the century.